0: All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter thirteen. We're going to also go to Ezra nine, and then eventually John chapter ten. And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to fast forward even further and go to Facebook uh, and a meme that I saw by an atheist that was very angry. And yet, I think it kind of brings this whole thing together for us. So uh, buckle up. We got to go from Nehemiah to Jesus to Mark Zuckerberg, all in one sermon. It's going to be a lot of fun. This. (laughs) <laughs> this, is our, uh, this is our second to last sermon in the series on Nehemiah. Uh, next week, we'll finish up with the final three verses. And then I think I'm going to do like a four or five part series on depression and stress uh, and what the Bible has to say to those things. I think it's very important. And I haven't talked about suffering in a while. So we'll do that, I believe, after we finish up Nehemiah. But today we come to this interesting uh, part of Nehemiah where we're coming to the end of it and it doesn't look like any of the stories that you and I like to read. There's not a happily ever after to the book of Nehemiah. And in fact, it kind of leaves us wondering, is that really it? Like when we get to the end of Nehemiah, we're thinking that cannot be it. There must be more to the story. But that's actually the whole point of the way the author writes this story. It's very common in Hebrew writing to do it this way, to leave it on a cliffhanger. You can read the book of Jonah or the gospel of Mark or uh, the book of Acts itself. Oftentimes you get to the end of these books and you're like, "What? wait, where's the end of the story? And the reason why it does that is because the author is inviting you into the story. He's saying now the choice is yours. The ball is in your court. What are you going to do with this information I've just given you? And one of the major things that's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah is the chronicler, who I believe is actually Ezra, but we don't really know, the guy who's putting these stories together is trying to get us to choose between two different pathways. There's the pathway of Ezra and there's the pathway of Nehemiah. Both are reasonable ways forward for the Jews, but one must be chosen over the other. There's two different things that they view as problems and two different things, therefore, that they view as solutions. So when we come to Ezra, Ezra believes... That the problem is us. We are the problem. And what we need is God to keep his promise to us. And so what we must do for God's salvation to come to the world is to believe in the promise. Nehemiah, on the other hand, says the problem is that we do not follow God's law. God has already spoken to us. He has told us what we are to do. The problem is our performance. We need to do the law. And the problem is is not what we believe or don't believe. The problem is what we do or do not do. And by the way, friends, the same thing is out there for all of us in the world, whether you're a Christian or not. That is what people are telling you that the way you go forward in life, the way you reach whatever perfection or standard it is you're trying to reach is either through believing a promise, trusting that somebody else is going to do it for you or by performing better. And all you really need to do is just to perform a little. If you could just eat a little bit better, if you could just run a little further on the treadmill, then you would be where you need to be. And what happens is, is if we believe that Nehemiah's way is the way, we cannot hear the voice of our Savior when he shows up with a promise. So it's very important. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Nehemiah first, and then we'll look at Ezra. But I want to pray for us before we begin. Father God, this text concerns hearing your word. God, I cannot help these people hear. Only you can do that. So I pray that you would clear whatever is in their way, So that they might be able to hear the promise that you have for them and to believe in that promise. God, we love you and we thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you give us your word and the way that you speak to us. God, we pray that you would do so today. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So We jump in Nehemiah if you'll remember, equals salvation comes through our keeping of the law. How is God's promise going to come to all of the world? What's going to come through us keeping the law? It is performance-based. Let's just read this story together, starting in verse 23. It says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. Now, verse 23 tells us what? The problem is intermarriage. Now, a lot of people who hate the Bible say, See, God is against interracial marriage. It has nothing to do with their race. There's two different reasons why you would be upset about (laughs) interracial marriage in the Bible. And the first of which is what Nehemiah says in verse 24. It says half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. Now, why would it be a problem that they could not speak Hebrew? Well, if you believe salvation comes through the law... It's very important that you can speak Hebrew because that is your salvation. So Nehemiah is spitting mad. I just spit as I said that. That was providential. Uh, (laughs) If you're on the first row, you're definitely in the splash zone. But (laughs) Nehemiah says that these people have got to know the law of God because if they don't, how can they keep the law of God? And if they can't keep the law of God, how is salvation ever going to come to us? As we move on to verse 25, we see Nehemiah kind of goes really angry. It's not just angry with his words anymore. His actions get involved. Verse 25. If you're a parent, you might understand these verses. I rebuked them. I cursed them. I beat some of their men and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God, which is just <laughs> hilarious to me. Like, imagine me coming down there, grabbing your hair, pulling you up to the altars. Now promise God you won't do it again. <laughs> That's what Nehemiah is doing. It's awesome, isn't it? I mean, it's not right, but it's awesome. <laughs> I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Now, this is what always happens when we believe the law is our salvation, because there's something in us that cannot keep it. And so what we must do is have somebody (laughs) force us to keep it. And if you want somebody, like if I'm a pastor and I believe like my whole job relies on you guys actually performing in a way that is in accord with God's law, I'm going to be depressed. Because what's going to happen over and over is you guys are not going to live up to the standard of God's law. And what I can do, and you've probably met preachers like this, is I can pound the pulpit and I can scare literally the hell out of you every week. And yet, is that very effective in the long run? Is there actually transformation? No, what happens is you either have a church full of self-righteous people who think they're better than everybody else or you have people who are so overcome with regret that they eventually walk away from the church altogether. And yet, this is what so many of us think Jesus is like. In fact, it's what the the disciples thought Jesus was like. It's very interesting in the resurrection accounts. When Jesus has risen from the dead, they go to the tomb, the angels are there, they say, he's not here, he's risen again. The disciples are all afraid. They run to the room and they lock themselves in the room. And I used to think, Why are they afraid? Maybe they're afraid because the the Roman Empire is going to come and think that they stole the body. But then I thought about it. It's like they can't be afraid of the Roman Empire, because if they believe Jesus is on their side and he's risen from the dead, what's the Roman Empire going to do to them? Know what they're afraid of, friends, is they're afraid of Jesus. You know why? Because before Jesus' death, every last one of them betrayed him. Every last one of them let Jesus down. And all they know is the language of law. And we have let this man down. And so when he shows up, this man with the power to raise the dead is going to come not to bless us, but to curse us. And it's why when Jesus walks through the wall, because you can't lock Jesus out (laughs) when he walks through the wall, they're immediately filled with fear. And the fear doesn't go away until Jesus says what? Until he says, peace be with you until he gives them the gospel. I do not come like Nehemiah, yanking your hair out and telling you how bad you are. I come with a promise that has been fulfilled. Now, we continue reading on and we see what the result of the law always is in further detail. Verses 26 and 27. It says, didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? So he's going back to the history of the Israelites and what has led them to this place that they're currently in. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations... He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? And what Nehemiah does here is he asks a question we often ask ourselves, when we're trying to live up to the law, whether it's the God's law or some kind of pagan law that we see out, by like trying to measure up to whatever's on Facebook, or you're trying to measure up to the Ten Commandments. We always ask ourselves this question, don't we? Why in the world did I do that? Like, we often know what is wrong, and yet we find ourselves doing it over and over again. We know we shouldn't drink, and then there we are again, drinking again. Or or we know that we shouldn't say that to our wife if we want a healthy marriage, but we look back and we go, gosh darn it, I did it again. I said it again. We ask the question, why, all the time. And there's not really an answer to it. Because we know why, but we don't know why we can't do it. We know we ought to do. There's something inside of us that is broken. It's kind of like when parents come and they ask you, uh, maybe this is just my childhood, but when my parents would come and ask me, you know, Blake, what were you thinking? They didn't really want to know what I was thinking. When I got asked that question, it was like, you are so dumb for even trying to do this. They didn't really want me to say, well, I was thinking if I lit the cat on fire, it'd be fun to watch him run. No, they, they knew what I was doing was wrong. They said, now what in the world would lead somebody to do this? Well, friends, that's all of us. Every last one of us do things that we do not even understand why we are doing them. And yet the law leads us to have to ask this question of ourselves. Why do I do these things? Verse 28, it says, even the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest Elishiab. This is the main guy in charge. High priest Elishiab, his son Jehoiada, had become a son-in-law. This is the part where we all get shocked if we know the story of Nehemiah. He's become engaged to who? To send Ballot the Horonite. Oh, no, you've got to be kidding me. That's the bad guy. He's in bed with the bad guy. That's exactly what's going on here. And not only that, but they've broken one of God's most serious commands in Leviticus chapter 21. By doing this, they have not just broken a law. They've broken a huge law in a massive way. And what's the response of Nehemiah? What's the response of the law? It says So I drove him away from me. And this is what the law always does. Friends, the law is good. But if you rely on it for your salvation, it will ultimately drive you away from God because you will try to measure up to something you can never, ever measure up to. And eventually you will walk away. Either God doesn't care or God is not there are the two responses we end up walking away with. Or you spend your whole life faking it like you've got it all figured out while on the inside, knowing you don't have anything figured out. This is what the law does. This is the way that is presented by Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great guy. We've learned many great things from him. But this is not one of those things. This is one of those things where Nehemiah is not correct. We cannot get our salvation through performance. So so the other side would be Ezra. If we go back to Ezra's book in chapter 9, we see the other side. And Ezra says, our only hope is the promise of God. In other words, what he's saying is we need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I know that we're not going to be able to perform up to the law. So my only hope is that God cannot lie. That God said He would see us through, so I believe that God will see us through. Not because I am great, but because God is great. Now before we get to that though, if you look at Ezra 7.10, I want you to understand, Ezra is not a person who's against God's law. Look at how Ezra is described when he's introduced to us. It says, now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra had given his entire life to God's law, but Ezra knew that if you tried to get your salvation by performing up to the standards of God's law, it would never do it. God's law is great in its place, but it can never be our source of hope. It can never be our source of salvation. Now, as we go to Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we see what Ezra puts his salvation in. It says, after these things had been done, the leaders approached me, me being Ezra, And so the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples, whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Termites, the Egyptians. Termites aren't in there. Just make sure you're paying attention. And the Amorites, verse 2. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. So we have the exact same problem. Intermarriage. But look, Ezra's reason for why it's a problem is completely different from Nehemiah's. So that the holy seed has become mixed with surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. That word holy seed, that goes all the way back to Genesis. The very first promise that God made. After man had rebelled and been separated from God, God gave a curse to the serpent who we now know is Satan. And he says, you will crawl on your belly for the rest of your life. And then he says this. He says, from the woman, a seed will come that will crush your head. And so all of Israel has been waiting on this snake crusher, this skull crusher that is going to come from the people of Israel and not just bless Israel, but bless the entire world, the Messiah. And Ezra is concerned because if Israelites are intermarrying, they're going to lose their Israeliteness. They'll lose their nation. And this is the nation that is supposed to bring about the Messiah. This is the nation that's supposed to bring about the holy seed. He says this is our only hope. That God will keep His promise through our seed. You see the difference? He's not interested in performance. He says there's a promise that we must believe in. As we continue on verse 3. Look at again another striking difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. It says when I heard this report. I tore my tunic and robe. And I pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard and sat down devastated. Nehemiah pulled out the hair of others. Ezra sat down and pulled out his own hair. Verses 5 and 6, it goes even further. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens which you say, Ezra, you didn't do anything wrong. Why are you guilty? Why are you confessing to God? You ought to be like Nehemiah. You're the one who's keeping the law of God. And yet you're pulling out your own hair and you're confessing to God on behalf of the people. Why would you do this? Well, here's why. Because Ezra knows the problem is not what we do. The problem is who we are. He knows that the same stuff that caused these people to marry the people who they were not supposed to marry lives inside of him. The seed of lust, the seed of envy, the seed of hate, the seed of all of the anger, all the things that cause all these terrible actions in the world, they reside in each and every one of us. In other words, Ezra says the problem is us. As that great theologian of modern times, Taylor Swift says, hi, it's me, I'm the problem. Now, Taylor Swift's a lot closer. This might be hard to believe, but Taylor Swift's a lot closer to the kingdom than a lot of people who sit in pews every single Sunday because she understands something. She understands that the problem is us. It's the inside. And this is exactly what Ezra does. So he identifies with the people and he confesses with them. And then verse 15, he says this. Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. In other words, he says, this is totally conflicting to me. Because I know that we should not be able to stand in the holy God's presence because we are guilty. We did it. We have it on our hands. It's obvious. And yet here we stand in your presence anyways. In other words, you know what he's saying? He's saying the promises of God are stronger than the law of God. That by believing in the promise that God will not abandon us, that is our hope. Our hope has nothing to do with us and our performance and it has everything to do with God and what He has promised to accomplish. That's where the story leaves off. But you and I, we don't have to leave off the story there. You know why? Because we're way in the future. So we're going to hop in our DeLorean, and we're going to go to the future. We're going to the time of Jesus. Now, we're going to the future because the name of the movie is Back to the Future, but then they go to the past. It makes no sense. So we're going to use the DeLorean the way it was invented, and we're going to go to the future. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's fine. (laughs) just need to watch more ungodly movies in your life, and you'll be there. (laughs) we come to the time of Jesus, there's a group of people who are following in the vein of Nehemiah. These people are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believe the way that Israel is ultimately going to reach its pinnacle is if they can get all of the lay people, all the people in the pews like you guys, to begin to follow God's law in their everyday life. They are concerned about purity. They want people to follow the Sabbath. Make sure you have your tithes perfect. Follow all of these laws of God perfectly. And if we do that, then everything will take care of itself. And Jesus shows up and he has a lot of conflict with these people. And in John chapter 9, uh, some of the conflict kind of comes to a head because Jesus heals a blind man and he has the audacity to heal people on the Sabbath day. Oh my gosh, how bad that he would heal somebody on the Sabbath. And uh, this conversation of blindness quickly turns into kind of a metaphorical Uh, idea of blindness where he's talking about spiritual blindness and at the end of the chapter the pharisees are offended because they are the godly people i mean these are the people who read their bible not once in a year but twice in a year and they've memorized even verses from leviticus and they say jesus you're surely not going to tell us that we are blind we've got it all figured out and jesus says no actually you're not blind your problem is that you see i wish that you were blind because i have the power to cure blindness but i cannot heal somebody of blindness when they think that they already see. He says, you see too well. You think you know everything. And we've probably already met people like this. If we use like modern language, we would say these people are woke. That, that term woke means you have awoken to the way things really are. And you see things everybody else doesn't see. And you're going to comment on their Facebook post to make sure they know that you see. And they don't see. You've probably ran into people like this. Now, that's kind of the secular version. We've also probably met the church version of this, have we not? The people who would just beat the Bible over your head and they just kind of, they don't have to say anything, but the way she kind of looks at you makes you know that that old lady is judging you for the way that you live your life. I don't know why I said old lady. I'm just saying modern day Pharisees tend to be women. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe you have different experience. But what they're saying is we see and you don't see. Jesus says, no, your problem is not that you see, because you do see. Your problem is is that you can't hear. You have too much earwax. You cannot hear my voice. And this is a huge problem. And friends, I'm concerned because I think some of you, even who may be sitting in these pews every Sunday, could have the same problem. You could be listening to my words, and yet if you're listening for the language of law, and I'm giving you the language of promise, you cannot hear the voice of Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. Who's doing all the work so far in this parable? It's the shepherd. All the sheep do is follow. Sheep are dumb animals. They will literally follow their friends off a bridge. That's how dumb sheep are. So what what these sheep are doing is they're simply following the voice of their shepherd whom they know. Verse 5, it says, They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. They could not hear What he was telling them. Why could they not hear? Well, we skip down to the end of the story. Verses 24 through 30. The Jews surrounded him and asked him, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25, I did tell you. And you don't believe. You don't believe. You see why? Because they're trying to perform up to God's law. And Jesus says, You just need to believe in God's promise. Two very different things. Verse 26, But you don't believe... Because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Which is a a great thing if you are a Christ follower. No one will ever snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see why these people cannot hear that? Because they think you've got to do something. And if you're not doing something, God's going to show up like Nehemiah and rip the hair out of your beard and tear your tunic because you're not doing the things you ought to be doing. And Jesus says, no, I give them eternal life, but they don't deserve it. (laughs) I know they don't deserve it. And you should see the future because there's going to be this group of people sitting in Fargo, Oklahoma in 2023. And if you saw that I gave them my salvation, you would be flabbergasted because they're a bunch of broken sinners. And you can know that because you look at the pastor. And yet my hope as a Christian is not that I have it all together. My hope as a Christian is that Jesus has come to me and he said, Blake, I give you eternal life. I have kept my promise not because of you, but in spite of you. And you don't have to worry. It doesn't matter what you do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, how bad or how far you fall. No one, and I mean no one, not death, not Satan, not sickness, not your sin, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Because of the promise that I have given you. That's the hope of a Christian. That's what I want you to hear. And I'm afraid that we don't. I'm going to go to Facebook now because Facebook shows me that many of us do not hear this. We sit in church like this and we do not hear it. Here's a meme I saw from from a mean atheist. And uh, I think a lot of Christians would probably have a problem with it too. People who call themselves Christians. I think we have it on the screen. Uh, It says, do you see that man over there, Timmy? Yes, Jesus, I see him. And by the way, they used white Jesus. I don't know why. That's not that's not what Jesus looked like. Jesus was a Jew, not some pale European man. But anyways, that's not the point. He says this. That's the man that murdered you and your family while you were sleeping. He repented and asked for forgiveness. Now he's here in paradise with us. Go say hello. Now, if you're honest, do some of you have a problem with that? Do some of you think about that from time to time? You know, the, the most evil and vile of person can repent and... They are in heaven with us just as we are because they believe in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, you do have a problem with that if you see yourself as little Timmy. And that's how we all see this meme. I am little Timmy, and God's letting in all the bad people. Not me, of course. I'm just little innocent Timmy. But the truth is, is to become a Christian, to hear the language of the promise, you have to realize that in this meme, you're not Timmy. You're the murderer. And you say, Blake, I've never murdered anybody. And it's true. I've never murdered anybody else. I've thought about it, but I've never murdered anybody i really have not but here's what i know the stuff that makes murderers lives right in here that hate and that envy and all of the things that would cause somebody to pull a trigger lives right inside of me the only difference is, is that the seeds of this heart weren't planted in soil so i promise you i could kill somebody if my dad was an alcoholic who abused me And then I I, I found myself in a situation where I didn't have very much emotional maturity and I had a gun in my hand and I had somebody who had done something very evil to me in front of me. I guarantee you because I felt this hate. I've driven on the road with some of you. I felt this hate. I know that if the situation was right, I could pull the trigger. I'm a murderer. I just haven't had the opportunity. I'm an adulterer. I just haven't had the opportunity. You see, just because my seed isn't in the soil that the murderer's soil was in, does not mean I'm not a murderer. I know the problem. The problem is that I am not Timmy. I am the murderer in this meme. And as long as you think you're Timmy, you think you see you have it all figured out, this promise that God gives you through Jesus Christ will always be a stumbling block, just as Peter said it was. People trip and stumble over it all the time. How could God allow such evil people into the kingdom? But when you realize, I, like Ezra, am one of the evil people, and when I see the sin of others, it reminds me of the sin that's inside of me. And that this is not just a, a problem that you have because you're not performing, but it's a problem we as a, as a human family have. Then you are in the position to hear when the shepherd calls to you and he comes to the door that you've locked because you're terrified. And he says, peace be with you. That's what I want some of you to hear for the first time. And that's what I want all of you to be reminded of on this Sunday. Let me pray for you. Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are the fulfillment of promise. That you do not come trying to get me to perform up to a certain standard because, God, you know that I cannot do it. God, how good of a thing it is that your word is preached to us. And that word is a word of promise. That all I must do is believe in you. God, thank you that you came in the vein of Ezra. Jesus, I pray for everybody in this room that maybe for the first time, Their ears have opened up so that they might be able to hear the promise for what it is. If you would, friends, with your eyes closed, head bowed, take about 10 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me?